Hi everyone, welcome to Tech Talk, a podcast where we talk about various technology-related topics and uh, just deep dive into a topic that we ch- we've chosen each week. Uh, today is a, a special episode because we have a very important guest with us today, Michael. Uh, he is a consulting software tester and a testing teacher who helps people to solve testing problems that they didn't realize they could solve. Michael has 25 years of experience in testing, developing, managing, and writing about software. Currently, he leads DevelopSense, a Toronto-based testing and development consultancy. Um, in 2006, he became co-author of Rapid Software Testing. Uh, since then, he has flown many countries, 35 countries on, on all different continents and helped many, many people uh, understand text testing and also implement the uh, Rapid Software Testing methodolo- methodology. Uh, thank you very much, Michael, for joining us today. Very pleased that you could, uh, uh, you, you could join us today. Um, so yeah, uh, I, uh, as you guys know, the, uh, uh, that I'm more of more into automation, but Amit has, uh, years and decades of experience in testing. He's, uh, so I'll, Amit, I'll let you start off the, uh, conversation. So, uh, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for joining this, uh, podcast today. Uh, my first question, and, uh, that's always, I mean, I think it's, it's one of the best questions is, what is testing? I mean, before we get into rapids, rapid software testing, I just wanted to understand what is testing. Well, you've been a tester for a long time. Yes. It's a good, it's always a good question. It's, I, I, I uh, learned this from a, a journalist recently that uh, the simplest questions are sometimes the most revealing. So it's a good question. We think of testing as learning testing is learning testing is evaluating a product in the form of software testing it's evaluating a product by learning about it how do we learn we learn through experiencing things we learn through exploring things and we learn through experimenting with things that's how kids learn if you watch kids Especially the the really little ones, the ones who are learning fastest, are the the ones who haven't been to school yet. They haven't been told how they're supposed to learn. <laughs> <laughs> of course, trial and error. Yeah. Of course. Well, a, a trial and error, but trial, yeah. trying things is really important. And of course, error, the, uh, making mistakes. That mistake that you make, uh, especially if you get some feedback on it, tells you. Uh, uh, not to do something, or it, it tells you to uh, uh, suggest that you do something in a different way, if you think of it as an error. Um, that's how we learn stuff. We try things. Now, it's always interesting to me that uh, uh, a lot of that stuff gets left out when people are talking about testing, but it seems to me that's fundamentally what testing is. Testing is trying things. And those experiments uh, in a a software testing context would include observing the product, manipulating it, um, uh, performing little experiments that involve uh, uh, navigating through it, seeing what's there, seeing what's missing. In a software testing context, 
uh, we pretty quickly start moving towards evaluating risk. We're trying to evaluate the product and evaluate the risk associated with it. And that means for, uh, uh, for me anyway, it means focusing on problems. We've got to focus on problems if we're testing software because um, the problems are there. <laughs> and you, you both have been programming for a long time, I imagine. And you know that in whatever program you write, there are problems. Yes. And yes. Humans. Inevitable. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how good yeah. we, we think we are, <laughs> it will always well, be. Oh, sure. Uh, not just that, though. Not just because of, how, how, of uh, uh, our propensity to make mistakes and coding errors and, and misconceptions and so on. But there's something else, and that is that a, a piece of software is not an intrinsic thing. It's not a. Uh, it's not an object. Uh, but even this is true even of objects. It represents a relationship between people. I first became aware of that kind of notion working with Cam Kaner back in the the uh, earlier two thousands that uh, software is a communication among people. It's something that bridges the communication between uh, people. It's a, a medium. And as such, there's a relationship on either side of the software between the person creating it, at least, and the person using it. And when we think about errors in, in programs, sometimes we usually think about errors in terms of the mistakes that a, a programmer might make. But there's also a room for a, a misstep, a, a problem in the relationship between the software and the person using it. And what that means is that a program that perfectly conforms to the programmer's intentions, programmer's models, the programmer's desires, might not conform to the intentions of the people who are going to use it. So, yes. go ahead. Yes, no, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, contextualizing, uh, I think, um, um, to be honest, I actually didn't know about rapid software testing before um, Amit showed it to me. And then I was re I was doing some research and I've, I was reading your website and one of the thing that is, uh, that I found very fascinating is contextualizing. And this is, I imagine what you were uh, talking about right now, that contextualizing to the user. Cause the programmer is, um, obviously programming and they're thinking in one way. And, uh, the user would probably be using it in a completely different sense. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I remember a joke, uh, um, which basically says that, um, uh, a man walks into a bar, uh, orders one beer, orders 999 beer, orders, uh, uh, you know, a number of different things, orders minus one beer. And then they, um, and then another person walks into a bar and walks in, walks into the bar. And then they asked the bartender to, where is the bathroom? He goes to the ba bathroom and the whole bar explodes because, <laughs> because obviously the tester tested all of these different scenarios of, um, you know, ordering one beer or different drinks, but they didn't test what a regular person might do is go and use the bathroom. So, <laughs> 
Well, it's uh, always interesting to me about that story, you know, it, and it's a it's a joke, of course. Uh, um, I uh, have been studying jokes for a long time. My uh, uh, my first job uh, out of high school was at a comedy club, stand up comedy ah. club here in Toronto. Um, the funny thing about that joke is that uh, the tester after the tester goes into a bar and uh, orders a beer. There's, there's something left out in that joke. And that is the tester never evaluates the damn beer. Right. Oh, right. Of course. <laughs> you know, how, how is this a tester? That That's not a tester. That's a, like some kind of weird uh, machine that, that goes in and, and orders all this strange stuff. Uh, if the tester's not evaluating the beer, uh, two things are, are are bad. One is the evaluation never happens, and of course the tester doesn't get to drink any beer, which is you know why I would go into a bar. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, the the sense of evaluation is uh, uh, missing. And I think it's. Um, I'm glad you sort of brought that joke out um, in a way, because it, it, uh, every joke affords the opportunity for an epiphany, right? That, that, ah. that's, that's what jokes are about. Uh, the whole premise behind a joke is that it is reframing something. It's like you're seeing something in a different way. So if, if this is the first time I've, I've sort of gone into that part of the joke um, in my own mind. And uh, uh, it suddenly occurs to me that so much of what people are doing in testing these days, so much of what is called testing, is based on doing stuff and not on evaluating stuff. We have a visitor here. <laughs> oh. the, the dog who is coming in to test to see whether there is any food. <laughs> what kind of dog? It's a... Somewhat surprisingly, it's a, a, a golden doodle. It's a cross between a, a golden retriever and a, a, a poodle. Ah, um, right. But uh, mum was uh, golden and dad was black. So it's a black golden retriever. <laughs> oh, I, I haven't seen that before, actually. No, they're, they're around. Uh, sometimes people call them golden doodles. <laughs> anyway. So after that brief interlude, um, yeah, uh, uh, the evaluation part of testing is what's really important. And, you know, while, while we're pulling on that thread, we might as well keep pulling and see what else unravels. Um, it's not just about providing input to the bartender. It's, as you say, contextualizing what comes back, because what comes back might be a kind of beer that you like. Yes. But it might not be a kind of beer that somebody else would like. And so what a really good tester does is a really good tester frames who this is going to be a problem for if there's a problem. Right. Yeah. Because uh, something that is working just fine for somebody might not be working fine for anybody else. That's the relationship part. And a really good film critic will allow that a film that seems terrible to, to some people 
might be just fine. We you have know, uh, lots of kids that adult or lots of uh, films that, that kids like adults won't like. So it, it, make that explicit in your review of the film that this is a film for, you know, for kids or kids of a certain kind of uh, uh, attitude, certain kind of set of preferences. <laughs> and then you can uh, write a worthwhile film review. But just to say that it's a, a, a terrible film leaves something out. It might be a really good film for somebody and it might be a terrible film for somebody else. So that's a much richer notion of what testing is all about rather than just providing input to something and hoping that the uh, that a beer comes yeah. back and the bathroom doesn't blow up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, tailoring the output to to target audience, that is that is so critical in, in everything that we do in, in, in technology, really. I mean, mm. um, to be honest, contextualizing is one of my favorite words. And I mean, I, I overuse this word whenever I go in any interview, because um, if I if I can't put myself in someone else's shoes, be it the user, be it the, be it the software uh, developer or the project manager. By doing that, I understand where they're coming from. Whichever role I have, it might be whatever the other person saying could, could feel like ludicrous to me. But then only after contextualizing, only, only after empath, empath, <laughs> being empath, <laughs> um, uh, empathizing, empathizing. Oh. Hey. Uh, uh, can I only understand that where they're coming from? And a lot of the times, um, the bigger picture is, is not clear to individuals, but, you know, someone, someone who is, you know, maybe the user or maybe the project manager understands the bigger picture. And they might be saying something or driving the project towards a certain direction, knowing the bigger picture. But as a software developer or a tester, I might not be able to see the reason. And, you know, the direction might seem like it's not worthwhile. But that's that's the time when you should really ask a lot of questions, communicate, and, again, contextualize to, to realize what it is that, uh, that is going on underneath. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of... Uh, uh, Testers, it seems to me, uh, can fall into that trap. Uh, it's easy to fall into a trap where uh, somebody is saying, this is a terrible program, or this, this is a terrible problem in this program. And, uh, uh, well, that's a perspective. That's not a, a, a property of the program. A problem is not a property of something. It's a relationship between... Uh, uh, something and someone or someone and someone else. Um, so that, that it's easy to lose track of that. It's easy to get in your head as a tester. Certainly I've done this lots of times, uh, seeing a problem that's really important to me and not recognizing that for the, uh, people who are going to be using the product, maybe it's not such a big deal. So an immense, part of the tester's job, and it's one that is overlooked across the board, it seems to me, is immersing yourself in the world of the user. And not just talking about it, and not just referring to the, the, uh, the user as somebody who might be using the machine, but somebody in particular who, who might be using the, the product for some purpose, such that 
the context of the behavior of the product and the context of the, the problem that we're observing uh, uh, gets related to people who are actually intended to use it as opposed to just being uh, uh, some kind of declaration that this is bad, this is wrong. It might be okay. Absolutely. I think uh, this actually uh, sometimes creates a problem or a rift between developers and testers because testers are actually just trying to identify issues with the software in terms of how it's going to be used by someone else and just identify them. They are actually not trying to say it's a good work or a bad work, especially for a developer. Because uh, me and Renath, we worked together on a project and Renath was developing the UiPath code. And every time I ran the code, I found an issue. <laughs> and Renath is like, oh, the requirement was not there. Or maybe I did not understand it correctly. And um, every time there was a bug, we, were, we used to go back and forth and discuss about why it was uh, not uh, uh, developed and how it can be done better. What can we think about it? I think it's uh, very important to think about that uh, perspective also because a lot of it is very uh, subjective. It is what I think. It is what someone else thinks. So it's again uh, a question of uh, who's testing, who's developing, who are they developing for. So that's where we have the personas. In testing, we wear a different hat. So suppose it's a non-technical person, how would they... Uh, use this product if it's a technical person they understand all the settings how would they use a product a simple example was uh, the url that i shared with you uh, for uh, scheduling this interview uh, in my head i thought you would understand but when you try to use it you uh, came up with a different outcome and you said amit i can't do this i can't do that i can't understand the interface uh, so so it was again a very different perspective which I had not thought about and it was a very simple thing but uh, I mean in a, in a completely different way uh, it was interpreted uh, completely differently so it was quite fascinating just that simple scheduling link yeah there's no better way to get perspective on something a different perspective on something and to get somebody else to take a perspective on it yes. uh, and uh, uh, now I'd, I'd, you're referring to a, a little uh, schedule sharing thing, a timetable uh, uh, sharing thing. And my recollection of it, it was a couple of weeks ago, so I don't uh, yes. remember yeah. the details. Um, but uh, for the, I think you were telling me that you had chosen, you said pick something from this range of dates. And I think the range of dates in question had already passed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, okay, I'll go back in time and uh, we can uh, schedule the podcast for then. Um, and then uh, I tried to advance the clock forward on that. And uh, all of a sudden, the option for my time zone disappeared. Yes. Now, how, how did this come to be? Well, my imagination, and it just, I don't have a... Uh, a way to back this up. But my imagination is that it was developed in one place and it didn't receive uh, uh, extensive testing from somebody in another place. In, oh, or maybe yes. any testing at all from somebody in another place. So there, there, um, 
there's a, a push for diversity in, in testing. I, I think it's a really important thing to have. We need as many perspectives as we can get. Yes. And those perspectives uh, are not just based on um, our gender or our, our skin color, which, by the way, is the most absurd <laughs> use for uh, uh, classifying people. It's the amount of melanin in your skin. That's just stupid. But we need diversity on uh, uh, cultural backgrounds, which are different and are significant. And uh, we need diversity on uh, uh, roles in a, a, an organization of the people who are using it, as you were suggesting, I'm in different kinds of uh, uh, people. But um, over the last several years, I've become more uh, enthusiastic about this idea. And I wish uh, uh, more managers, more organizations, and more testers uh, were, were pushing for this. And that is, if I really want to understand how somebody's going to use something, I must be in their world. Uh, I, I must live with them for a while, like an anthropologist would. And uh, uh, hang out with people who are doing that work. Now, uh, if you've got a social media app, everybody's, you know, everybody's using one of those, right? There, there's not a whole lot of really important cultural differences there. But um, if you're a, a tester who is uh, placed into a financial uh, context, if you, uh, big money, uh, or if you're uh, uh, working on a, a medical device, I think that it, it's really important uh, somehow, and it's logistically challenging, but it's really important to immerse yourself in the world of people who are doing medicine, who are doing finance, and to hang out with them as they actually do that work. Now, uh, uh, you know, the, immediately I can see pushback coming from management who says, well, we, that's expensive. We don't, we don't have time for that. Well, yeah, what's the rush? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, want it, do you want a product that fits for those people or do you not? And the consequence of all this is in the, um, the medical records field, for example, very famously uh, for this. Um, if you talk to doctors and nurses and administrators, you just look at what they say about these things um, uh, on the web, in magazine articles, newspapers, you'll find out very quickly that they hate them. They hate these uh, uh, patient record systems because they don't fit with the work that, that these people are trying to do. Uh, they're not... Uh, a, convenient they're not set out they're not uh, uh reform enough they're very restrictive um so what happens is that patient care starts to look like the work of computers and not like the work of doctors right nurses so very interesting you raise this point because uh, we have uh, nhs the national health service in the uk and whenever we go to our gp the general practitioner um, they open a piece of software and they start typing things into it. Um, I, I never actually thought about the user interface behind that particular software, but I'm um, I'm guessing that yes, some software 
person and some software consultancy must have designed it and they would have enforced it on all the uh, uh, NHS health workers and now they are restricted to using that piece of design um, and uh, and actually a lot of companies are trying to disrupt that market but it is very difficult to get access to that particular system and replace it because there is a lot of knowledge in that system and the way it's used who uses it how it's being used etc so so it's it's very interesting you raised that point but uh, software is um, anything that can be used to control machines and in this case we are uh, i mean we have software to do things and different types of things so you gave an example of uh, say doctors using uh, the patient record system but there are softwares say the mars rover that is using nasa just sent a rover to mars so that's uh, being controlled by software and then we have software that controls industrial machines and then we have softwares the regular software that we use the websites the uh, microsoft office operating system etc so uh, when we, and when we talk about testing software so rapid software testing has software in it so uh, what kind of software are we talking about and does that method or does testing apply to all kinds of software uh, or do we have to approach testing different types of software differently well when you say that software is being used to control machines when you're saying that software for example is being used to control the mars rover um that's true um but what's the mars rover doing mars rover is Are, yeah i mean it's it's performing some actions based on so uh, the software is taking inputs through what the heart or the sensors are taking it's evaluating those inputs and then it's trying to give an output that output might be sent to the hardware and the hardware then does some action okay so let me offer a, an interesting distinction that i i uh, came upon recently and uh, it comes from a fellow that we been talking about quite a bit in, in RST over the last few years because he's been very influential on the way we think about this stuff. His name is Harry Collins. And uh, uh, Harry points out that computers and their software themselves are machinery. Ordinary machinery. He talks about these things in terms of uh, um, Pardon me, I'm being familyed to death here. There we go. Um, he talks about software as being mechanical and points out that uh, uh, the earliest computer that we call a, a, anything like a computer itself was mechanical. It had wheels and cogs and so on and so forth. Um, so they're, they're machines, but he says they're also what he calls social prostheses. They fit in the space, a social space where a human once fit. Or if you like, uh, I would offer uh, uh, where a human with superpowers could fit certain kinds of superpowers, the ability to do calculations really quickly or the ability to control a number of machines simultaneously. Well, Deciding whether the prosthesis, like in a medical prosthesis, the body around the prosthesis has to adapt to the fact that the prosthesis doesn't do exactly what the human 
uh, pancreas would do case of an insulin pump or, or what uh, um, what my brother has no arm from here down and he wore a prosthesis on his arm for a long time. He stopped doing that for most uh, uh, purposes because he didn't do what he needed a, an arm to do. Uh, he wasn't able to, uh, Harry's word is repair the difference between what this machinery should do and or what the prosthesis should do and, and the thing that it replaces. But what's the Mars Explorer doing? Well, the Mars Explorer is still part of a system that has humans at the other end of it. Yes. The Explorer, you know, people talk about them as Mars Explorers, but they're not doing the exploring. We are. And we're using these immensely sophisticated uh, uh, machines. Right, exactly. In order to uh, to effect our exploration. Um. So whenever we talk about machinery being used to control, you know, software being used to control machinery, uh, the end of the sentence is missing. The end of the sentence, it seems to me, has to include for what human purpose? Because whatever machinery is doing, it's always doing something for a human purpose. It has no intention. So when you said um, uh, action, uh, there's a very interesting distinction that I think is worth making, and I'm, I'm going to try to start making it or, or bringing it to the, the light of the testing and development com uh, community. A difference that Harry distinguishes between behavior and action. Where a behavior is a, a something that is observable and physical. Um, you can see it. Uh, you can discern it. Uh, there are little catches to that, that there's some uh, uh, mental behaviors. There's a little bit of uh, a fuzziness in there, which I, I won't go into because it will complicate things a little bit. But an action, says Harry and his uh, uh, colleague, uh, Martin Cush, is behavior plus intention. So like right. a conscious choice, a conscious decision. So you think about it and you act upon it. So an action and a behavior could be unconscious. Uh, yes. Uh, um, and a, a nice way of uh, uh, thinking about it, I suppose, is to uh, distinguish between a blink and a wink. Ah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Right, a, a blink is something that just happens. Right, and here, here, here I am uh, blinking my eye, uh, but a wink has intentionality associated with it somehow or other. But what's interesting about a wink is that even though it's exactly the same action, or, sorry, the same behavior. Pardon me, I'm messing it up myself. It's exactly the same behavior, but humans have the capacity to sort out the intention. Thanks to the fact that we're social agents. So if I go like this to you, um, it is a, a, an attempt to communicate, which we'll sort out in context. Like, uh, 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 I, I might be joking, so I wink. Or I might be greeting you, so I wink. Right. Or I might be um, uh, trying to seduce somebody, so I wink. 
Or I might be trying to signal, <laughs> all right, you know, we're uh, okay. The, the plan's ready. Now we can jump the guards, right? Uh, all these things can be imparted by a wink, um, which is physically, uh, but a blink, only a blink. Um, so one of Harry's points is that machines behave. They don't act. Right, right. The rover behaves, but it doesn't act. The action part of it comes from from us. The intention part of it comes from us. From merging, well, from the user or from somebody who who has some kind of uh, uh, need or desire and uh, uh, has an intention to get something done. Now, there's a you know there's a lot of nuance associated with that, but the the basic idea behind it, I think, is it might be. Useful to remember that, and especially in a day and age when people are getting very excited about what machines are capable of, of doing. They're not capable of forming intentions. Yes, not yet. Uh, well, not yet, but I mean, uh, uh, what would they have to do in order to form their own intentions? Not an intention that well, is, is programmed into them, but their own intention. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, then um, this reminds me of a science fiction I read um, when I was a teenager. And uh, this was about how to make AI, um, you know, so they can feel. And one of the one of the um, ideas that the author was exploring was that um, what if a an AI was made in a way that they're constant in a, you know, a, a very constant pain all the time. So, um you know, if they see something, and that could be a library of things, various things, which will give them a like a reduction of of, of from that pain. So, say for example, they, if they look at flowers, that could reduce the pain very slightly, and that would translate to be, you know, um, translate to be some sort of emotions or you know feel good, and uh, you know, obviously then. From there, uh, it, it can become, you know, a, a, a very complex set of library of various things could become, could make it uh, have some sort of intention that it is always intending to reduce the constant pain it has. And um, who put the pain just, in? Well, <laughs> that's that's the, the the pain or discomfort or something that 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 that's, that needs to be programmed in. So. And so we're right back to people again, right? We're, we're right back to the, the, the human intention to model this in some way. So uh, 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 as long as we have people directing the construction and the programming of the machine, uh, there will be uh, people in the equation. Another dimension of that, which is really interesting, and it, Harry is a sociologist of scientific knowledge, but he's one of the most interdisciplinary people I can imagine. For a long time, he's been writing about what machines and humans can do because he's been studying the nature of knowledge. And as a, as a sociologist of scientific knowledge, especially, um, he's uh, been involved in, in watching people uh, build and construct machines of various kinds, uh, lasers and uh, gravity wave detectors, interferometers and, and computer software for those things and so on. Um, but what he points out is that 
and a lot of people miss this. Uh, we say, oh, well, we can have artificial intelligence if we expose computers to everything that's out on the web. Um, no. Yeah. No? Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, I think, uh, Renat, but why? Uh, uh, just as a, I'm transparent. Well, I mean, well, well, it depends. I mean, for, I mean, I think I'm coming from a different uh, perspective. I mean, I was taught, when, when you say artificial intelligence, I was more, you know, talking about general intelligence where they, you know, they are their own self who can, you know, who can have intention or, or feelings or some, some sort of, um, yeah, intention, to be honest. I mean, uh, that, that's the general intelligence, isn't it? And that, I mean, obviously, we, uh, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's a good, it would be a good thing or a bad thing, but I I I, I can kind of think that we're we're nowhere close to that there yet. But but I I agree. Um, but what's the uh, what's the problem with uh, uh, showing the machine pictures of flowers? Um, uh, sorry, I'm not really. Uh, of of course, we can show. I mean, right now we have uh, AI modules which will identify what. Is the picture that we're showing? You know, is it a car? Is it a dog? Is it a flower? But it won't, um, you know, it won't feel the way we feel of when we look at different objects. Now, why? I mean, I think the question is, why do we feel the way we do? Uh, and you know, and you know, what is the what is the nature behind that? And obviously, you know, you could have evolutionary exp uh, explanations behind it, and then ultimately, we would all end up finding the reasons why we do what we do and uh, you know there will be reasons behind it and then we'll realize that even we are not and you know as complex that we thought we were <laughs> yeah I, I don't know about that i'm fascinated by that idea and i'm i'm, I'm with you all the way here uh um i uh, agree um when you say it, it doesn't feel what we feel, I think that's really important because, uh, for example, the machinery does not see a flower. It sees, it sees a pattern of bits and it doesn't see it. I mean, when we see it, we're, we're automatically using it. When we say see, we're using a metaphor there, but it doesn't smell the flower. Yes. It doesn't uh, uh, share the pleasure of receiving a flower from another person. Right. Yes. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have those kinds of social and cultural associations that we have with flowers. Um, it doesn't realize the significance. It, 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 I'm uh, very lucky at the moment because just outside my, my window here, there's a crab apple tree and it's blooming. Ah. And um, it's gorgeous. It's it's incredible. And we've had a really long, cool spring here in Toronto. It's been much cooler than than usual. Not so cold as to freeze the buds off, <laughs> but cool enough to uh, uh, preserve them. And on top of all that, we haven't had a big uh, a windstorm or a big rain that would tend to wash the blossoms off. And I've been home the whole time, thanks to this terrible situation we're, we're working with just uh, these days. Um, well, and uh, um, my, you know, my wife and I uh, go out in the back garden and we look around and say, isn't this, isn't this pretty amazing how wonderful it is? Cause it's always a, a teetering on the edge of uh, uh, dying. Um, 
how wonderful it is that we've got this tree. Well, it, it, as you say, with the, the feeling, um, the machinery won't do that. And that's why, to bring it back to testing, that's why I think we've got to be super cautious about the beliefs that we have about what machinery can and cannot do in the field of testing, because machinery does not feel. It doesn't get frustrated. It doesn't get annoyed. It doesn't get confused. Uh, to the degree that it does get confused, it got confused because the programmer got confused. <laughs> the programmer didn't anticipate a, a, a situation. or, or And that's not, uh, that's not a diss on the programmer. Lots of things are uh, hard to predict, unpredictable, uh, surprising, novel. Well, uh, machinery just doesn't know how to deal with that. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we are um, at the, exactly the same time as we're enthusiastic about tools in rapid software testing. We are skeptical about them. Uh, they are not the royal road to, uh, um, uh, to getting testing done. They accelerate it and they intensify it and they uh, enable certain things to be very difficult otherwise, but they can't do the testing. Tools don't do testing. And it's crucial for us, I believe, to remember that um, because what tools do is they accelerate things, but they're agnostic about whether what they're accelerating is good or bad. <laughs> right, of course. I mean, I, I, I see we, we keep coming back to the, the human counterpart of, uh, of, of any kind of, uh, technology implementation. And that's, that's not a right counterpart. Right. It's not a counterpart right. though. It's a, it's like the, the human counterpart, uh, to, um, uh, it's like saying that the human counterpart to a prosthesis is a hand. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's uh, not that's not the way it goes. Um, um, the 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 uh, uh, prosthesis is a stand-in. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that uh, uh, prostheses uh, are fundamentally uh, always in every way limited. For example, they're, they're those um, artificial legs that have those springs at the bottom. Yes, and and people who who use them adeptly can run much faster than a human can. But the point is that they extend us, they intensify us. And so if we're doing bad testing, then software can help us bad, can help us do bad testing faster and worse than we've ever done it before. Right? Uh, it enables, it enables and intensifies whatever we are. So um, uh, it's, a, it's an extension rather than a counterpart. Uh, uh, but I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's an of important course. point. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I was actually going, um, uh, thinking about um, asking you about something else. So, um, so, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that, that's, that's, it's good to be, be clear on that. Uh, yeah, it's an extension, not a counterpart. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, but what I was thinking is obviously we, 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 you know, of course, you know, the contribution or the, the role of human is, is, uh, at, at this point, not uh, not replaceable. 
And um, what I was thinking is, I mean, I my passion for standardizing things kind of brings me back to, okay, so we can't, uh, we'll always have humans at the end who are, you know, bringing the intent, doing the actual thing. Um, but can we standardize the human being? I mean, perspective taking, you know, we, we talked about perspective and how important it is and how different cultural background could, could give us different, uh, different perspectives. But could we, you know, anyway, standardize it? I mean, humans, you know, for, for millennia have tried to standardize or categorize other humans. For example, it started with, you know, the uh, astrology, which was, which was obviously very stupid. Uh, but, <laughs> now in in recent years there has been other type or other ways to categorize human behavior in a way like myers briggs where you know you get you know four letters to describe yourself and then there is uh, discovery insights where you can be one of four types you know you could be like do it now person or the analytical person or do it together person you know that kind of thing so could we in any way standardize human behavior from an user perspective that, you know, that a tester can utilize to do various perspective taking? So, you know, they, they would have like a list of, I don't know, 16, 32 or even 100 different perspectives that there, there could be in any scenario. And the tester would sort of utilize that list so they can ensure that, oh, I have tested for all different kinds of perspective. Is it possible? Is it possible to standardize it? Well, you, you, you practice something called robotic process automation. Automation, right? yes. Yeah. Well, it's possible to standardize robo robotic processes. Yes, I mean, that's the whole I, idea, I right? Yes. That's the yes, whole idea. Um, uh, the question is, do we want to make something a robotic process or not. Right, okay. Hey, uh, there are certain things which I could quite easily tolerate being a robotic process. Um, but, um, well, let, let's see. Um, the uh, manufacture of something, when we want to make a zillion copies of something, mm -hmm. makes sense to me if we want to have a consistent output from something such that the millionth copy of it is just like the first one, then robots could be a, a good way to do that. But the trouble is humans don't want that all the time. Yes, absolutely. Because what we're talking about with a piece of software is not the millionth copy. It's the first one. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening when we're developing a piece of software. Uh, a lot of people want to turn that into a, a, a factory process. Well, that makes sense if we were producing the same piece of software over and over and over again, but we're not. We're always trying to produce a piece of software that solves some problem for some person and does so in a novel way. Now, the yeah. process of copying bits <coughs> from uh, uh, one hard drive to another or, or copying bits from, uh, well, still one hard drive to another when... Uh, um, I want to see a movie. Okay, I want to see a movie, uh, and so I, I go to a streaming service, and the streaming service uh, uh, cheerfully supplies my computer or my device or my my uh, TV with a bunch of bits that represent that movie, and it's great that we can do that consistently. But here's something that still pretty much sucks pretty badly, and that is 
there is no software that I'm aware of that can reliably show me a movie that I like. <laughs> Point <laughs> I mean, me to that... a movie that I want to see right now. Now that you know, the, I mean, it, it can. Uh, uh, maybe I want to watch a, a, a documentary, uh, but my uh, my wife wants to to watch uh, a a good drama. Well, there's no piece of software it seems to me that can square that circle, <laughs> uh, uh, because tomorrow the, the whole thing could be different. Today I want to see the drama, and, and uh, tomorrow I want to see the drama, and she wants to see the documentary. Well, as soon as we involve human needs and desires and uh, a social contact, we can't we can't automate that. And that's the that's the real job of testing. The the easy part of the testing job is the key punching. Yeah, that, we can yeah. automate key punching. That's easy. Uh, we can automate comparison of this particular output that is coming out of the the program right now to that particular intended desired predicted output the one that we wanted presumably but what we can't get software to do uh, is to say well i wanted something different based on this little tweak in my preferences or in my needs or in my desires or in the situation or in the fact that uh, um, uh, this person is uh, 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 two meters tall and uh, this person is uh, uh, 1.5 meters tall and uh, clothes look different on them, you know. Um, right, right. Fair enough. I mean, you you know, you've presented a scenario which is quite complex for to automate or for for robots to sort of do or come up with the right movie that you want to watch. But I mean, to be honest, for, uh, let me let me uh, present you an opposing scenario where, for example, I mean. Before I before I present the scenario, I mean, for, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I'm coming from a place where I don't narcissistically think that humans are the most complex, you know, thing that can happen. Um, you know, a lot of the times humans are quite predictable. So the scenario is, you know, if I if I was to poke someone with a toothpick, there's only a handful of reaction you can expect. Uh, you know, maybe they will go out or maybe they will just remain nonchalant. Maybe they will act out. Maybe they will, you know, respond with, with their voice. There's, there's only a few things that can happen, uh, you know, after that incident. Um, now, if you create a library of complex incidents of various things that happens and create order of what would have higher priority in, in a human in terms of you know, if three different things happened to them, um, you know, someone talking to them and being poked at the same time, as well as maybe the TV is on. And then depending on what, uh, you know, the order of priority of that human, they will probably behave a certain way. And that that is, you know, theoretically calculate, you know, it's possible to calculate, calculate. So, you know, if if as the you know the the power of technology improves and we could do more and more calculation and we could have more complex libraries of you know a- actions and uh, responses to those actions, could we not eventually crack this code of how humans behave? And then from there, we could probably streamline or standardize <laughs> the, the human reaction, and then have all kinds of perspective that could th- that there could be and. Uh, anticipate and program from there and then do testing well, 
let me say one thing about that that I, I find appealing. Because uh, I find much of it pretty unappealing. But there is one thing that I think in there that is, is uh, very worthwhile. Um, if we stop treating uh, machinery as um, a, uh, a controller of things and start looking at artificial intelligence as a lens or a mirror into ourselves, I think it could be interesting. I don't want to put it in charge. I think that would be a terrible thing, uh, uh, just uh, on on principle. And and when um, when people say, "Oh, wouldn't it be better if machinery handled this?" I think that is uh, a, a sort of kind of hyper rationality that that itself borders on a, a certain kind of uh, a narcissism. But there's a general systems problem associated with understanding what's going on in a human head, and that is we we need something more complex than a human head to do that. And we wouldn't know uh, what that was <laughs> because all, that's what we've got. All we've got is human. Um, now, there's something to be said as well for the fact that a bunch of human heads in collaboration forms a kind of superhuman uh, uh, power. Indeed, that's the whole thing behind testing, isn't it? That uh, the uh, perception of any person who's building a piece of software um, is limited to their own interior world. And so having another person's perspective is automatically going to afford a different perspective of of some kind. Um, Now, we want to be cautious to make sure that uh, we're not limiting ourselves to to other builders, or indeed, even with testing, other people who come from a a software background. I think it's really, really important for the, the testing world to embrace non-programmers, non-technologists, and bring them into the field of testing, as indeed lots of companies are doing with with social scientists and and, uh, um, uh, psychologists and artists and musicians and designers and so on. It it seemed to me that in a way that uh, uh, the world of software is more fertile uh, back in the days when there were fewer people who had uh, gone to school for for computing and computer engineering and so on. when uh, uh, the computer business was so desperate for for people that they would hire, you know, somebody like me who came from a theater background originally. <laughs> um, I think that's all to the good. It's important to have non-builders in there. Um, but if we're going to build uh, some kind of, uh, uh, if we're going to build AI, to use it as a, a model or a, a, a mirror or a lens for looking at how we think. Um, well, that's, you know, that's sort of interesting. That's pretty interesting because uh, on top of everything else, it, it um, prompts us to think about certain kinds of ethical things. Uh, uh, the, the sorting out the trolley problem and, and variations on it and, and so on becomes much more real when you're putting it in, you know, somewhere into a, um, an autonomous vehicle of some kind. Um, but how much farther do we want to go with that? Um, I don't 
you know, I, 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 I'm using, we're using computers at this very moment in a wonderful way. Helps us yeah. to chat with each other and, and talk to each other and so on and so forth. Um, but I'm resistant to the idea that um, uh, they should be going any further than we want them to go. That, that humans must remain in charge. But uh, Michael, I mean, if we if we take that same premise, uh, so let's let's see. For example, Donald Trump was elected uh, U.S. president uh, through fair and uh, uh, through fair uh, means through public voting. Um, but but a lot of people in the uh, in the general population didn't want him to be the president. Now, instead of Donald Trump, if we have someone uh, some AI, for example, which is non-biased. Um, which doesn't care about uh, what your uh, color of skin is or where you come from and uh, or uh, what sexual preference you have. And uh, without any of those judgments, I then take decisions which benefits the majority of the people. Will that not be uh, tolerated by humans? Because then we have something better than someone that we are actually elected. Well... Let me be the first to say that uh, whatever mechanism that it might take in order to uh, keep a, a Donald Trump out of office, <laughs> I'm not going to turn it down. <laughs> I'm just challenging um, your, uh, yeah. your... Okay, well, you, you had a key word in there, majority. Majority, yes. Okay, so as soon as you decide that the will of the majority uh, will be uh, followed... Then you've got a, a new problem, and the problem is that the will of the minority may not Agreed. be respected. Agreed. Okay? Yes. That's one issue. And the other issue is that uh, uh, we need the will of the minority. True. Right? We absolutely need it because otherwise the uh, will of the majority prevails. And, I mean, we're watching that play out right now in all kinds of situations in today's news, you can open up and, and see how uh, uh, people whose uh, uh, rights have been trampled on. Uh, you can see how uh, uh, people whose uh, uh, needs have been ignored. Uh, you can see how people whose uh, uh, suffering has been uh, uh, pushed aside. Uh, well, you can look at that and say, well, what's wrong here? Uh, you know, I mean, the majority rule, right? <laughs> well, that no, that won't do. Yeah, um, I mean, always, always favoring majority might be counter, counter, counterproductive to a meritocratic society to begin with, because merit isn't always the majority. Um, Certainly not. I mean, I, I, I mean, Trump did get in in 2016. Right? <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, so I mean, uh, but who decides is is the question exactly. on the table, right? Who decides what's right? Who decides what's good? And that's something that uh, uh, is not subject to calculation. It seems to me certainly not subject to an algorithm. Okay. Can't be subject to an algorithm because the algorithm A finishes. It's the nature of an algorithm is to finish. And the nature of an algorithm is always to get the right answer. Now, in a formal system, that's great. That's a wonderful thing. 
because it allows us to uh, solve certain kinds of problems uh, that yield well to formal systems. But the world of humans is not a formal system. It's a social system. And uh, uh, that means that, that uh, as soon as we start to uh, apply an algorithm to that, there's a, a chance that the uh, algorithm will come out, not just a chance, a certainty that the algorithm will come out with a right answer for someone. Yes. Yes. And, yes. Uh, I mean, in testing, we see that, right? Uh, so we, we have a tool which automates things. Um, so people call it automation testing tool. So it's trying to execute certain things um, and then give a result. And based on those results, we decide whether we want to release the software or not. And uh, we look at... Uh, oh, whoa, 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 you missed a step. You missed a step. Okay. Based on those results, we decide whether we're seeing a problem or not. Agreed. Okay. So because there could be a problem in the in the test code, there could be a problem in the uh, experiment that the test code instantiates. There could be a problem in the product. The so product we got to remember that. That's a really important point to uh, okay. uh, not to leave out and to paper over. <laughs> yes. Uh, so whether there is a problem or not, um, but in 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 that case again, we think about uh, the have the majority of the bugs been fixed and some bugs left which can be left ignored so again we are talking about majority of bugs in a, in a list of say 100 bugs uh, we are talking about okay if all the major bugs or say 80% of the bugs are fixed can we release the software uh, with 20% of the bugs because I mean we are not thinking about human beings here we are just thinking about software bugs and with that well, we, it, 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 as soon as we stop thinking about human beings we're in trouble because when you say 20% of the bugs, what's in those 20, what's in that 20%? So, so in, in testing, it only kills a few people. <laughs> it's a medical device. Oh, we only off a couple of people. We fixed the 80% bugs where we, uh, no, it's, it's uh, a typo. It's a documentation error. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the icon is, uh, not right, right color, things like that. So, I mean, I, I understand there is a human aspect to it, but from a software point of view, if we have to objectively think that, okay, can I release it or not based on the testing that has been performed, how do I decide that? Well, uh, what, did you, what do you take objectively to me? So subjective is something that is coming from my own experience and objective is something that everyone in the room can agree. Everyone. Everyone. So like... Okay. He, what about the people not in the room? Even they. <laughs> even they. So so like... Even they. Like, like uh, we call uh, the uh, gravitational force to be of a certain uh, strength on planet Earth uh, in certain conditions based on a certain height. Objectively, we know the value and objectively, anywhere on the planet or anywhere in the universe, we can conclusively agree that this value will always remain the same given these conditions. So that's an objective. So, uh, this is a really wonderful example um, uh, that you chose. You happen to choose gravity because that's what Harry Collins studied for the longest time. Yeah, 45 yeah. years, I think, he was involved in studying gravity wave physics. Okay. Um, and uh, there's an immense problem associated with that. And the immense problem is that 
as soon as you have somebody declaring, I've seen a gravitational wave, I've observed a gravitational wave, there's controversy. Yes. That's what happened in the 1960s or 70s. A, a, fellow, a fellow named Joe Weaver said, I've created a machine that can detect gravity waves. And all the physicists said, no, you haven't. And he said, yes, I have. And they said, no, you haven't. And he, he said, why? They said, because your machine is not sensitive enough. Yes. Your machine doesn't, uh, uh, it shouldn't be able to capture a gravity wave based on, on the theory. Okay. 45 years of refinement uh, got us to the point where finally a bunch of scientists who, by the way, having detected a gravity wave, actually having detected a gravity wave, waited five months to uh, uh, declare to the world that they all apparently knew that they, they detected a, a gravity wave within the first week or two. But it took five months for them to go through the laborious, exhaustive and exhausting protocols for them to agree that they agree on something. Okay. Now that there, now there's still a few people in the world who will say, no, you haven't detected a gravity. So what objective means is we are no longer listening to objections. <laughs> or objectors. <laughs> right? So it, um, um, as soon as you've got a human involved in making the decision, one or more or more or more or more, uh, then you've got something that is objective. Uh, now, you know, you, you, we can come to an agreement on this. So we would, uh, but let's not kid ourselves. Um, you know, uh, like uh, astrology is objectively uh, uh, incorrect, right? Astrology just doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would agree. I, I, I would agree too. <laughs> but um, uh, now we've got uh, just recently in in India, we had that situation where uh, is it Kumela? Is that the the Kumbh pronunciation Mela. of yes. Kumela? Yeah, that yeah. festival happens every twelve years. Except it happened again this year. Because uh, astrologers declared that it's not exactly every 11 year, 12 years, you know. So this was a kind of a, a sort of leap year, leaps backwards a year. Uh, in order to, to, to line up, right. And, of course, uh, that happened during uh, COVID. Now, try to tell, uh, I, I mean, I think it's monstrous myself. That, that we're listening to uh, astrologers on how to make decisions about this festival, because you could have put it off another year and very few people would have been terribly upset. <laughs> but the astrologers were saying, no, it's got to be this year. What are you going to say to them? Because these are strongly held beliefs. And for them, it's real. Yes. It is absolutely a real thing. Your science, uh, 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 they will say to us, uh, uh, means nothing. We have the science. <laughs> um, and there's a, a wonderful line, a, a fellow named Wade Davis, an anthropologist, who apparently was talking to a, 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 a Tibetan Buddhist uh, who says, uh, you know, we, we Tibetan Buddhists don't believe 
that uh, uh, Western human beings have walked on the moon, but you did. He says, you don't believe that we can achieve enlightenment in our lifetime, but we can. Ah. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, <laughs> enlightening. This, now, this is not to be anti-science, right? I'm, I'm a staunch and admirer of, of, of science, and my goodness, what it's been able to do to address the COVID uh, uh, problem is, is utterly magnificent. But another thing that Wade Davis said is that when we walked out of Africa, he says, uh, along the way, humankind invented 10,000 different ways of being. <laughs> right. And I think yeah. that's just absolutely gorgeous. And we've got to remember that when we uh, are in the process of, of saying, well, this bug matters and this bug doesn't matter so much. Um, it's true to, for us. Um, but let's also remember, as we're in a rush to release things, that humankind has survived uh, something like two million years uh, without your stupid piece of software, <laughs> your manager. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, we we could we can go another week probably. Um, uh, it's uh, we're we're funny we're funny critters we humans. So uh, you you mentioned rush. So in a rush of software, and then in rapid software we have the word rapid. Mm. So now. Why are we testing software rapidly? Because uh, we want to uh, help people uh, with the process of evaluating software in the fastest, least expensive way that still completely fulfills the mission of testing. The mission of testing being to shine light on the product so that people can see it for what it is uh, of course, that's all uh, goes. Uh, uh, here comes the objective thing uh, <laughs> coming in again. But um, uh, we we try to help uh, people make uh, informed decisions about software by examining it and exploring it and experimenting with it and experiencing it, so that they can find the important problems that matter expeditiously, as quickly as possible. Um, in a way that makes sense, uh, uh, you know, and, and so that they can make decisions about it, so that they can decide whether this is a problem that, that is important to fix or a problem that we can live with. As you suggested when you were talking about that 80-20 thing, well, um, it's not just the numbers, it's the significance of it. But if they decide that in that 20%, there's nothing that would uh, uh, destroy the value of the software or even uh, uh, limit it to, to people who matter, uh, so we want to be able to do that quickly. And that absolutely involves uh, uh, application of tools, uh, but it also involves having a rich set of ideas, a rich set of perspectives on what's going on in the project, on how to apprehend the product, how to look at it. So in, in RST, uh, we have a, a, a our own list of heuristics. Other people, of course, are welcome to have their own list, but our, our list goes to the structure of the product, its bits and pieces, the functions that it uh, um, um, executes, um, the data upon which the functions act, uh, the interfaces, 
by which we get data into and out of the product and, and by which we might observe and, and analyze and get output from the product and so on. Um, the platforms upon which the product depends. Operations, that is how people actually use the product, how people take advantage of the functions, uh, how people uh, put the functions to work when they want to get something done, when they, the rubber meets the road. And uh, time. So we have these seven basic perspectives, and, and, and each one of those has a, a still more depth to them. Um, but um, uh, we try to provide people with a rich set of ways of looking at the product so that uh, we reduce the chance that we'll miss a problem courtesy of not seeing the product from that perspective. Um, similarly, uh, we have a list of uh, uh, attributes of quality for the product, capability, reliability, usability, charisma, scalability, security, compatibility, performance, installability, these being things that, that matter primarily to people who are going to be using the product and getting value out of it, but there's also development-related quality criteria, supportability, testability, maintainability, portability, localizability. Now we've got but that's a, a list of quality criteria. We encourage people, we practically require people to create their own. They can adopt ours, but then it's like, uh, um, uh, it's like uh, adopting a pet. Uh, you, you, you've got to make it your own. Right? Um, then uh, we also have a, a set of means by which people can recognize problems in the product. Um, and basically that uh, amounts to uh, uh, is the product consistent with patterns of problems we've seen in other places at other times? Is the product consistent with our ability to explain it? If not, we suspect that there's a problem. If the product is inconsistent with uh, some aspect of the world that we're aware of, that we understand, that we've got experience with, that uh, uh, the product is not modeling successfully or that, that uh, the product is not uh, dealing with properly, if the product is inconsistent with its history, if the product is inconsistent with an image that the organization wants to project or defend, if the product is inconsistent with claims that important people make about it, if it's inconsistent with products like it in some sense. Now that's where, uh, by the way, test tooling comes in uh, because a test tool is an instance of a, a comparable product It doesn't we don't mean a competitive product when we talk about that. We're talking about something where the uh, a tool or an algorithm or a feature in some other product or a, a comparable product of some kind is inconsistent with the product we've got. We have reason to suspect that there might be a problem here. If a product is inconsistent with claims that important people make about it, with uh, what users might desire from it, that goes back to the quality criteria that I mentioned before, if the product is inconsistent in or with itself in some sense, if the product is inconsistent with the uh, intended and either implicit or explicit uh, um, desires and intentions of the designer, the builder, if the product is inconsistent with standards or statutes or laws or regulations or protocols, uh, then we suspect that there's a problem. And our, our goal in doing all this, in, in this sort of fire hose of little guideword heuristics, is to provide uh, uh, testers with the, the insight 
that if you've got a rich set of models and a rich set of data and uh, a rich set of tools, then you are better positioned to identify problems that might elude us otherwise. And to the degree that we're seeing problems in testing these days, it, it is due to the fact that uh, managers, developers, and testers all alike uh, uh, are limited in terms of their the richness of their, their approaches and their models and, and, and heuristics for uh, identifying problems. I mean, that's why problems exist, because we're not seeing the product from a sufficient variety of perspectives in order to identify those problems. So the skill that we're trying to teach people in RST is uh, the skill of applying those kinds of uh, heuristics, but also the skill of developing those kinds of heuristics to, to uh, continuously enrich the set of stuff that we've got for um, for identifying and, and um, uh, describing and uh, contextualizing uh, <laughs> problems. Right. Okay. I mean, this has been a very insightful conversation. I mean, um, I have haven't thought about many things after uh, you know before you explained um, with the analogies that you've used. It's very, very insightful and, you know, a lot of uh, food for thought to begin uh, to, to, to do in the future. Um, absolutely loved this conversation. I mean, Amit, uh, do you, I mean, we are kind of... Um... I know, but uh, I, I have a couple of questions for you, Michael, because uh, it's very fascinating what you've said um, and interesting to look at uh, the all the different aspects of looking at a software when we are actually testing. It makes sense. But then you have these agile principles and agile methodologies and waterfall methodologies. So where does RST fit into an organization where an organization is trying to uh, deliver this software as quickly as possible in an agile way, in a continuous CI/CD fashion? Then how does RST fit into that uh, methodology? Because then um, development is happening. There is pair programming. People are saying, let's shift the testing to left. Let tools do most of the testing. So where does RST fit in all of that? And how do you apply that in a in a practical perspective? It's, it's easy to look at a, a problem from all the different perspectives. But then when it comes to practicality, how do I apply that, um, say, in an agile method of software development? What's more practical than having a lot of thinking tools at your disposal? Agreed, but a lot of perspective. That makes it instant. Yeah. Well, time and cost. Well, okay, but uh, compared to what? Um, if I have an idea, let's say you're, you're you're talking about shifting left. We prefer to say spread left, by the way, because we don't for a moment believe that um, it's a a uh, it's possible for us to shift testing left such that we're going to identify all the problems in the product before they go into the build pipeline. That's just, it's crazy. Anybody who, who believes that uh, uh, will uh, be unpleasantly surprised in fairly short order, probably. But we do believe in the idea of spreading left. So let's ask ourselves in those development meetings where, where we want to be fast, let's ask ourselves some questions before Little problems 
escape our notice and get packaged into a much bigger problem. So, for instance, in uh, uh, a planning meeting, we're in the process of designing software and we want to do it quickly. What's going to cost us time? Errors. Bugs. Things that we overlooked and things that we didn't notice. So let's ask ourselves in those planning meetings, let's ask ourselves at least these four questions with two little variations on uh, each one. Four questions are, what are we building? Who are we building it for? What could go wrong? See, that's the tester sensibility. That's why we're at the meeting, right? What could go wrong? Yes. And how would we know? That's the testability aspect of it. Okay, so ask those four questions and ask them continuously all the way along. And you can ask them as quickly as you like, but if you've got a rich set of models available to you, you will be able to target those things at the speed of thought instead of having to sort of look them up or to write a program for them. Okay, so then you perform this little shift. What else are we building? Who else are we building it for? What else could go wrong? <laughs> and how else would we know? Okay. So now, now we've expanded our uh, initial uh, set of things. Who else are we building it for? There may be people we've forgotten, right? So we have to think who else. Um, and uh, there may be people that we don't want access uh, to the product, uh, like uh, hackers, so who are we not building it for? That's so that's the, the, the second uh, uh, shift that we make on that. The second shift is, what are we not building? Who are we not building it for? What could not go wrong? <laughs> and how might we not know? <laughs> so once you've once you've uh, uh, put that kind of flexibility. And you're thinking now you have a bunch of dimensions by which at any time through the process in the sprint planning meetings and that sort of stuff, obviously, uh, but all the way through, if those are, I was going to say at hand, but it's more like at mind. If those things are present in your mind, then uh, you can, uh, you at least have the chance of identifying a problem that would have escaped you otherwise. So the role of the tester is, I, I argue this strenuously. There are people who say, oh, testers uh, have to accelerate the building of the product. And I, oh, of course we have to accelerate the building of the product, but we do that in a different way from the builders. Because the builders want to build stuff as fast as they can and as well as they can. And it's our job as testers to worry. Yes. Our job as testers to doubt. That's that's the service that we provide. And in fact, uh, one of the ways we're talking about it these days is to say that builders and programmers connect the world of humans to the world of machines. That's what they do. But what testers do is we connect the worlds of humans and machines to the world of doubt, to the world of risk, to the world of problems, so that the team can build stuff more quickly and more powerfully. But here's the catch. It's really hard to wear two hats at the same time. I shall demonstrate. 
<laughs> if you're doing that, you look kind of silly now, don't you? Right? I just happen to have two hats. And it's even harder, by the way, when one of the hats is a programmer's hat. <laughs> Yes, the six decision-making colors. Yeah, I, I, I never thought of that, actually, I suppose, except there's no black on this one. It's very colorful. Ah, uh, right. but there's no black on this one, so you need the black hat. Oh, well, what a perfect metaphor. In order, <laughs> in order, uh, there's uh, six colors here, but there's no black hat. And the black hat is the hat for the world of doom, the world of doubt. <laughs> Uh, uh, the world where, you know, things might not all be rainbows here. There might mm -hmm. be a dark day ahead. So um, that's our job. That's our special job as testers. But that doesn't mean it needs to slow things down, except to the degree that maybe things are going too fast anyway. Um, my friend, oops, now the door won't close. There we go. Uh, my friend uh, J.B. Rainsberger put it really wonderfully one time when, when uh, uh, programmers sometimes uh, 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 he realized we're not uh, uh, being diligent or thorough about uh, uh, testing and checking their work. And they would complain to him saying, oh, you're creating all this extra work for us. And he says, no, it's not extra work at all. He says, just working you've been getting away with not doing. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> So um, uh, I'm all for, for doing things quickly and, and um, uh, immediately. But here's, here's something kind of important. You cannot write a program or a test script that will lead you to all the bugs in a product until you have got experience with that product in some sense. True. Um, you cannot uh, anticipate all the problems in a product. Many of those problems uh, can be addressed in advance of encountering them, but some of them are going to escape your notice. So here's the thing. The kind of testing that we see a lot of organizations focusing on at the moment, and it's a good thing to do this, is what we would call shallow testing. Right. Now, that sounds like an insult, doesn't it? But it's not. It does, <laughs> like manual testing. Well, manual testing, I think, is is I I take issue with that, but that's a, a, a another thread. Shallow testing is not intended to be an insult. Shallow testing is a good thing to do because it allows the programmers to go at maximum speed with reasonable amounts of discipline. Right, programmers go quickly if they can do shallow testing to make sure that what they've just built is reasonably close to what they think they're building. Uh, if we're committing easily avoidable errors, we probably want to know about that. And by the way, when I say committing, that's a pun. <laughs> but committing in the sense of making mistakes and committing in the sense of putting it in the, the Git repository. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're committing easily avoidable errors, shallow testing can help us prevent that. Shallow testing is inexpensive. It uh, is not intended to find deep problems. It is minimally disruptive to the programmer's flow. And that's a good thing. So shallow testing is not an insult, but it might be a warning. Because as soon as you think of shallow testing, 
immediately, it seems to me, uh, the idea of deep testing should come in. And that's where we try in, in RST to shine light on different kinds of testing that we would want to do in different contexts. That those four questions that I raised earlier, those are, are, are testing questions that we ask during the intention frame of something that we're building. Whether that, by the way, is a, a whole product or a story or a feature or even a line of code, we're forming an intention to build something. And those four questions in the back of our head can help us to get straight on what we might want from the customer, what we might want from the product. Right. Then we're building it. And there's a discipline aspect of testing where we're doing shallow testing to make sure that what we're building is reasonably close to what we intended and is done minimally expensively and uh, uh, minimally disruptively. That's a good thing. There's a preparation or a testability frame where we're looking at the whole landscape and asking, are we doing things to make testing as fast and as easy and as um, uh, uh, as non-disruptive as possible? Are we allowing the programmers to go at maximum speed um, while at the same time having at least some eyes on looking at the product in a deep way? Not on every build. You can't do that on every build. But every now and again, looking at some of the build and looking for problems that might have escaped our discipline because program problems can get by even a very disciplined programming regime. Right? People, people make errors and those errors uh, can get buried. So at that point, we're looking for deep, hidden, rare, intermittent, subtle, platform specific, and most of all, emergent problems, problems that show up because we can get strange and surprising interactions between things that on their own are wonderful, perfect. But when we put them together, sometimes they, they behave in ways that, that we didn't anticipate and that we could not have anticipated until we actually experience them. So the theme of rapid, uh, theme of rapid software testing these days is to make shallow testing uh, deeper and to make deep testing cheaper. <laughs> right. I like okay. that. Mm. Awesome. And, and making shallow testing uh, uh, deeper allows deep testing to be cheaper. That's a good thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. That is fascinating. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, this, this was an amazing conversation. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that our audience have, it will have a lot of value and insight from this conversation. Thank you, Michael, for explaining all of these things to me and also putting up with my my uh, uh, half than half than good uh, counter arguments. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, did you say you wanted to ask anything else? Or uh, I think uh, that has been really insightful, uh, Michael, because thinking uh, about a product from so many different perspectives is actually quite important because a lot of times we miss that. Uh, and uh, And if we can do that, quickly rapidly then that improves the quality uh, of the product and that makes it better for the users and it uh, it uh, helps the company uh, create a good reputation so i think testers i i've been testing now for 14 years and i love testing i'm very passionate about it and um, i i feel what you uh, said that we are there to worry we are there to ask what can go wrong so we are there who are asking the questions and asking the right questions are actually quite important as well. 
So as, as a tester, our job is to ask the right questions so that others can think about it and come up with a better uh, solution. So uh, thank you so much again for your time. Uh, it's been really enlightening. And I've been listening to a lot of your other talks as well. And um, what we'll do is we'll share all the links to your course as well um, uh, on um, our uh, video as well as the podcast. So people can uh, join your courses as well. So thank you so much again. Do you have any message for our audience in the end? Well, you summed up uh, uh, what uh, I've been trying to say so uh, very nicely. So thank you for that. Um, uh, yeah, my uh, uh, my uh, benediction, if you like, I suppose, would be to uh, uh, to remember that that doubt is a positive thing in the end. Right. Uh, it looks like a, a, a pessimistic perspective sometimes for, for people to think that our job is to uh, uh, investigate the software for problems. And ultimately, it's an optimistic one yes. because yeah. by becoming aware of problems before we inflict them on people, uh, we can do something about them. So that that's the optimistic uh, message of all this fundamentally. So I'd like to say thank you to, to you, gents. This has been a, a, a at least as... Uh, valuable for me as it as it has been for you and i i appreciate the um uh the questions and the uh counters and the the conversation it's been uh, really terrific so thank you